Hello, I'm Chris Hudson and welcome to FIS's Freight and Commodity Podcast on Wednesday the 23rd of February. In a change from the usual podcast this week, we are talking everything environmental. Over the next few years, you are not going to be able to escape that word and its impact on our lives and the way we do business. That being said, it needn't be something scary and impossible, as this is an exciting world of new opportunities and genuinely good tasks of ensuring humanity's and our planet's survival. Therefore, this week, I've brought together a range of people to talk about the key ESG-focused commodities of carbon emissions, battery metals and pulp and paper to at least start to explore this future world a little bit more. But speaking of threats to human existence and impact on markets, this week the doomsday clock ticked even closer to midnight as we saw a further escalation of tensions in Eastern Europe over mainly Russian-speaking regions in Eastern Ukraine that were recognised as independent states by the Russian president and a legitimising of Russian forces entering those areas under a peacekeeping mission. Financial markets across the world took a hit from this, but what about commodities week on week? What have our main markets done? Well, if you look at the freight markets, we've had a nice little increase across the board. Capes, Panamaxes and Supermaxes all increasing. Cape size ending yesterday. This is obviously Tuesday the 15th of February versus Tuesday the 22nd, moving up just over two grand, 16,709 last night. Panamaxes, 4TC index, 22,000 now just above. Supermaxes, 10TC ending 25,950. On the iron ore, we've seen a drop-off now, those impacts of those investigations and in trying to cool off the movements from the Chinese government perspective as well, uh, having an impact 132.75 closing last night on the 62% iron ore contract. On the oils, that's obviously had a huge impact with what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. Brent crude closed yesterday at 96.49, having been 92.90 the week before. And Sing 0.5%, obviously the fuel oil, uh, moving up above the $700 mark now, was 687.20, now 709.20. On the tankers, though, fairly muted. Uh, Hardly any movement on the VLs, T3C route, TC2, uh, off slightly around about five world scale points. And TC5, uh, again, hardly a mover there, still bobbling about the 96 world scale level. On the steels, that's popped up uh, from last week, 9.06 it was last week, now 9.28.25. And the EUAs have continued their fall, dropping below the 90 mark. Uh, this is the European Union compulsory market, the EUAs. Uh, it was 91 euros, 14 on Tuesday the 15th of Feb close. Uh, Tuesday the 22nd of Feb, 89.77. To begin our look into environmental products this week, let's first start with the context of this shift towards all things environmental. It has been the topic of pressure groups for decades, but now green hippies wear suits and have political office, increasing exposure of the issue and driving change. The environment has become a hot topic, so much so that we have unprecedented international agreements like the Paris Climate Accord signed in 2016. This moment has also moved into business world, and I think it's fair to say has split it between those who are actively embracing it and those doing the absolute minimum they have to. I have Alex, our MD of strategy here, to discuss it in a bit more detail. So Alex, this green stuff isn't going away, and it's something people now need to take seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm going to use a phrase I've used before in here, and that's that this is very much a movement and no longer a moment. And it's very much a global movement. You know, as as a society, we've now sort of agreed to reducing, I think it's the, the, the one degree target in the next few years, and that's the reduction that we're looking at. 
And we've seemed to have concluded, although there seems to be a consensus, that the best way to go about this is to do it through a carbon tax and essentially carbon credits. Um, and I think you know people get very much tied up in the EUAs and voluntary products, all, all these which are great markets. But we've got an interesting piece of work which I thought I'd bring today, which is done by one of our interns here, Sam Rivas. And he's done a sort of global examination on, on, on the different carbon taxes. And quite revealing, really. I mean, you know, in North America, it's not just the US and, and their Californian carbon credits. You know, Canada's got uh, implemented something. Mexico, since 2014, applied it to fossil fuel usage. Uh, you know, in South America, Argentina, 2018. Chile, 2017. Colombia, 2016. You know, this, this, this really is, is, is going everywhere. Africa, obviously, falling a tiny bit behind at the moment, unfortunately. South Africa have got um, a scheme that they've put in place. Uh, you know, Europe, obviously, we know about Ukraine. They've got bigger. They've got bigger issues to look at. But you know, Oceania, um, the Kiwis have, have applied it to the forestry, liquid fossil fuels, stationary energy, industrial processes, waste. You know, we have now decided that as a society to reduce our carbon emissions, to hit those targets that we were discussed at COP21, the way to go about it is a carbon tax. Now. Not all of these countries have emissions trading schemes. I'm looking at what he's written down here for China. Um, they actually started their ETS in July 2021. But Asia, you know, Japan, China, Kazakhstan, Singapore and South Korea, they've all got carbon tax schemes in place. This seems to be how we're going to arrive at this uh, reduction in temperature that we've agreed on at COP21. And, you know, the, the moment you realise and you frame it up as a tax, you realise the commercial implications. And the fact that you can trade these credits has even further commercial implications so yeah absolutely this has definitely moved away from the sort of forums of the conspiracy theorists and it's moved on to the trading floors uh, globally not just london not just new york but like i said kazakhstan's ukraine's chile's this is a, this is now a global movement our first product this week is carbon emissions a fast emerging market which has already been adopted by several countries and regions who have already built it into their legal systems and plans for reaching net zero but what is this market and why should anyone get involved I talked to Theo to shed some more light on these issues. So Theo, as our carbon emissions extraordinaire, we're going to come to you uh, with all the questions about what's going on in this unique and pretty cool market. So starting with the basics, kind of, I guess, explain to all our listeners very simply, what are the two types of carbon contract and what are the difference between them? Okay. Um, firstly, I mean, carbon emissions, so by definition... So carbon emissions is the release of carbon to the atmosphere. So when you talk carbon emissions, you are talking greenhouse gas emissions, which is the main contributor to climate change. So we, the contracts that are out there, we have to break them up into compulsory and voluntary. So the compulsory markets, the major markets, is we all well aware of the European market, the UAs. And now with Brexit, we've got the UKA. Uh, in, in the US, there are two major, the California Carbon Allowance, the CCA. And then there's the RGGI, which is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, and that covers the U.S. states from Virginia to Maine. And, of course, there's the, um, the Chinese uh, compliance market as well. Now, from the uh, voluntary side, when, we, when we're talking from a futures perspective, the major market, the major exchange is the CME, which has the nature-based contract, uh, the NGO, and the geo which is uh, more aligned to the airline industry from there i mean there are other uh, exchanges that are uh, popping up everywhere now um, and also there's physical exchanges but they're probably the main markets 
So we've got lots and lots of different contracts and, and differences of people uh, between compulsory and voluntary. So I guess the next thing that people will ask is, why would I need to trade a compulsory? Why would I do it? And conversely, why would I need to or want to trade a voluntary? Okay. Well, I mean, from the compulsory side, the let's use the UA for as and as an example. The compulsory side, the compulsory markets are cap and trade markets. So, so the EUA would have a certain amount of uh, credits to allocate per annum, and they they would allocate them to the industries that are applicable to those allowances, which would then be passed on to the individual companies who are legally binded to reduce their emissions uh, from their operations. Now, should a uh, an in, a, a company uh, emits less, then obviously they they are long the uh, the uh, amount of allowances, and they can sell those into the secondary market. If they emit more, then they are short their allowances, so they have to buy buy them from the secondary market. So that's the that's the basic nature of the cap and trade, which is in the EUA and California, etc. The voluntary carbon market is where companies participate due to their corporate sustainability commitments or their net zero pledges, which you're hearing about a lot. So for example, a company that wants to reduce, uh, let's use a basic example, they want to reduce the emissions from operation of a shipment from port A to port B. Well, they can actually purchase, apart from doing what they can from their scope one, which is their direct uh, emissions on their shipments, um, they can, the remainder, they can actually purchase voluntary carbon credits in the secondary market and try and reduce to as much as possible their their carbon emissions from that voyage. That's how it works. And then thinking about these two different markets, what what will considerations to companies need to have or traders need to have when when thinking about these two different types of market? Okay. Well, again, it will probably come down to the voluntary and the compulsory. So in the compulsory market, uh, you you know what your allocation is, you know what you're emitting. You've, you've done those um, calculations and then you would actually uh, operate accordingly to try and come under if, if you want to sell those emissions, those uh, remainder uh, long credits to the market. Um, and then that's pretty much the way that works. Now, from the, um, the voluntary side, it's a lot to do with the quality of the offsets. So the quality of the offsets that are purchased by companies uh, to meet their emission reduction targets, they vary significantly. However, while some offsets um, pay to remove CO2 from the atmosphere by funding, let's say, the planting of new forests, for example, others may finance the protection of existing forests. So, which, while beneficial, they those don't carry the same carbon reduction impact. So the pricing of carbon, um, though through voluntary uh, carbon markers, is also, which is less, less is less than the uh, mandatory carbon markets. The, um, the, the actual voluntary carbon credits, the value will vary depending on the nature of the carbon credit. So again, companies will need to consider and align their corporate sustainability commitments uh, with a sort of certain type of voluntary carbon credits they, they wish to purchase. So thinking about the difference between the two, compulsory markets seems more like a environmental tax. And then on the voluntary yeah. side, that's more specifically you are looking at lots of different projects which you can actively fund um, and those come in lots of different qualities and are, are registered with different different companies and groups uh, and each of those will have a different quality and level of, 
of environmental protection or actually something which is going to reduce carbon emissions with a, an actual project like a new forest, like you said. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's correct. And then on the flip side, we've got loads of other people who will look at these markets and go, all these new people who are coming in, uh, it's generating liquidity, it's generating price volatility. That's also something which people could be interested just as a market rather than necessarily the kind of environmental front as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, in that, from that, I mean, there's, wow, we could have an entire episode devoted to trading strategies for uh, for uh, carbon markets. I mean, you, I mean, I've talking to, to participants, traders, uh, funds, there are so many strategies that you could put in place. There's a macro strategy, you could, you could argue, a, relatively price, a relative pricing strategy for compulsive versus voluntary, a fundamental strategy, you could argue, um, in the voluntary market, a supply versus retired credits. If you think that uh, there are more, there's more supply coming in versus the amount that are retired. Um, there's also like a political strategy, I guess. I mean, for example, like, you know, it's not crazy for me to say this, that you know, we saw Indonesia uh, last year, was early this year, where they uh, banned exports of coal. Now, you know, would anyone think in the wildest dreams, what would happen if Indonesia decides to ban export of carbon credits? I mean, you can't put it past that. I mean, that is a political risk that you've got to consider. If it does happen, then those $15 credits might look like they're going to hit 50 very quickly. Um, I mean, of course, there's also the classic correlation strategy. So let's say the correlation strategy currently in place is the uh, natural gas strategy, which you know, natural gas had a heck of a year, as we know, last year. Is one of the few markets, along with the, the dry, dry bulk market, that outperformed carbon in 2021. And this outperformance was created uh, an, in, an interesting paradigm because the as natural gas was a low-hanging fruit for the compliance entities to reduce emissions, therefore their exposure to carbon and, and their cost of carbon. But natural um, the nature gas, uh, sorry, natural gas has half the CO2 emissions of coal. So when you think about power plants and switching for example, from coal to gas, they have half the demand for allowances. So when European gas ripped through 300% last year in 2021, this, of course, supported carbon prices. And then, of course, that uh, has, has continued on. And, I mean, currently right now, I was looking at my screen, EUAs are now at uh, EUA December 22 is at 90.7 euros. And that's because TTF, the, uh, the Dutch-denominated uh, European, I guess, index for gas is now trading at 82 euros 75 cents per megawatt hour. So, you know, there's an argument that you could actually trade a correlation strategy as well. There's a lot to do. Exactly. And now you've got a company who's looking at this, has listened to this podcast. Compulsory market, you've got some new people who are going to be involved. Shipping, for example, has been involved in the EU scheme from next January. But on the on the voluntary side, you've got a company who goes, actually, we want to make more of an environmental effort. We have that as part of our structure. What are the kind of next steps that they need to take or think about before they start coming to trading these voluntaries? Uh, from that perspective, I mean, first of all and foremost would be their corporate sustainability uh, goals, what, they, what they're trying to achieve. From that, having a discussion with uh, experts from the industry about the different types of uh, voluntary carbon credits out there uh, and what suits uh, their, their, uh, their company goals. From that, if you are going to participate in the market, you would need a registry account which, with the likes of the largest, which is Vera, which you can uh, Google and find that Vera registry account, which also lists every single project that Vera has on their accounts there. 
and you can zoom in on every one of them and see what the type of project is, what their goals are, what their um, benefits are. This is pretty much everything. And then from that, you um, contact people like myself and FIS, and uh, we can provide you a suite of uh, or, a type, or a number of different types of uh, projects. And uh, and if you purchase them, we, we register them into your account, and you are a holder of those. And then from that, you have the right to either sell them on the secondary market or retire them against your sustainability goals. Yeah, and if anyone has any more questions or wants more in-depth answers than the 10 minutes which we've spent on carbon emissions today on the podcast, then of course you can contact Theo for all the answers and all the information. Batteries have been around for years, but they're going to play a large part of the shift to a greener future. How, you ask? Well, I talked to Peter Hanna, Senior Price Development Officer at Fast Markets, about current market and the changes and opportunities of future holes for the battery metal markets. So, Peter, when we talk about battery metals, what exactly do we mean? Sure, uh, Chris. Well, yeah, we're, we're talking about the um, materials that go into um, typically lithium-ion batteries, which is the main technology that is underpinning um, the shift to electric vehicles and also a lot of um, stationary energy storage applications. Um, so what we're talking about are uh, metals like lithium, um, nickel, cobalt, manganese, um, but also graphite, which goes on the anode side of the battery. Um, and for some stationary energy storage applications, um, vanadium is also quite a, a key battery metal. Um, but something to appreciate is that when these products are traded, they're not uh, always traded as metals themselves. So something like lithium um, is traded as a, a chemical compound. It's um, either lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. Um, likewise, with something like cobalt, um, the main material traded uh, for the battery supply chain is cobalt hydroxide and then into cobalt sulfate. So um, the, there's a bit of material complexity as well in there. And then think about the kind of ESG point and its, its focus on, on the environment. It's not necessarily, I would say, people's first thought when they think about being more environmental and our environmental future, they think of battery metals. But it's going to be a huge part of how we actually make that transition, the green transition, right? Absolutely. Um, it is a, you know, emissions from, from transport are one of the key, um, you know, carbon emissions areas to abate. Um, global transportation sector accounts for about 8 billion tonnes of, of CO2 emissions each year, which is around quarter of total global CO2 emissions. Um, and it's road vehicles, passenger and commercial, um, that account for the majority of that, around 75% uh, of the total or, or 6 billion tonnes. Um, some of the other sectors, like air travel, seems to get a lot of attention, but actually only uh, contributes about 10%. Likewise, shipping a, a similar similar figure too. Um, so, you know, transportation is just one sector that needs to abate its carbon emissions, but it is a very big one and it's significant. Um, and the best solution that we have for doing that is, um, you know, going through this transition, replacing our vehicles that are powered by uh, fossil fuel, fuel using combustion engines, um, replacing those with battery electric vehicles that are powered by renewable electricity. Um, and then f for that, we obviously need uh, critical battery raw materials like lithium cobalt. Um, so I think from an ESG perspective, um, given that these materials are so critical for the um, energy transition and reaching decarbonization targets, um, they really should be thought about as you know, ESG positive materials inherently in their own right.
And then thinking about the development of, of markets, we've already had the CME launch two contracts uh, with respect to, to battery metals, and we've got upcoming SGX as well. I don't know if you want to do a little bit of self-promotion on that. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, SGX announced at uh, the beginning of this year in, uh, on the 12th of January that it was going to be launching a, a suite of four energy metal derivative contracts in the first half of the year, subject to regulatory approval. Um, and these were these four contracts were lithium hydroxide, uh, lithium carbonate, cobalt metal, and cobalt hydroxide. And all four of those will be cash settled against the uh, fast markets assessments for those markets. Um, I guess the, the unique aspect of SGX's move compared with the uh, contracts launched by CME and LME last year is that uh, the SGX will be the first international exchange to offer futures for lithium carbonate, which is a really important development because carbonate is still the bigger traded product than uh, hydroxide. It's also easier to handle and store and you know, people, for those reasons, uh, see it as more tradable. Um, SGX is also going to be the first, first of the exchanges to launch a contract for cobalt hydroxide, um, which is the more significant upstream cobalt compound than lithium metal for the uh, battery supply chain. Um, and lastly, SGX also have, as I guess, the, the benefit of being an Asia-based venue in a market where, uh, to date, most activity and growth has still been concentrated in this region. So we've gone through the process of, we understand why battery metals should be considered part of uh, the ESG portfolio inherently, what kind of involvement that has in the market, and a little bit about those contracts there. So now the question is, why would anyone want to trade these contracts, especially think about those derivatives uh, contracts at the moment? Yeah, I think the the appeal of commodity derivatives like like these new contracts is that they give direct exposure to uh, market prices themselves without the need to handle uh, the physical commodities or without needing to uh, take on risks associated with individual companies of investing, say, in a, a commodity producer equity. Um, also, if you are thinking about the, the macroeconomic environment and you're worried about inflation trends, then exposure to underlying commodity prices uh, can be preferable to investing in equities given the, uh, the, the, the profit margin of a commodity producer um, could be pressured from rising costs in an inflationary environment, um, even if the price that they're, of the product they're producing is also rising. So for those, um, those reasons uh, are why you know, people might look to take, take a position on the commodity price themselves through uh, these derivatives. And then looking further into the future, we have our current technology, our current battery technology and the contracts which are being launched, which clearly focus on nickel, lithium and cobalt. Uh, do, you, do you foresee any more developments in, in the battery space of, of other contracts or other materials which might come on uh, as dr- tradable derivatives? Yeah, I think uh, there are some key ones like um, uh, graphite is is going to be a developing part of the market. Um, that is the, the key material for the anode uh, part of the battery. Um, potentially also at some stage, something like vanadium um, and uh, products like manganese sulfate as well, which is a key uh, part of uh, the nickel cobalt manganese batteries. Um, in terms of technological trends, uh, lithium is pretty safe as the key battery technology, at least for the foreseeable few decades, um, for you know, a couple of main reasons. One is simply the economies of scale uh, that is being built around its production um, that will make it pretty hard to compete with. Um, and then the, the second reason is its inherent technical advantages. It's the, the lightest element that isn't a gas, 
that gives it a, a very high energy density. It's power to weight ratio, if you like, um, and that makes it hard to compete with as well. Um, competing technologies for for transport, hydrogen has been talked about, but um, the the thermodynamic efficiency of, of fuel cells is just pretty problematic. It requires about double the electricity input per unit of energy you get out compared to a, a lithium ion battery. So it's not really um, a great option for road transport. Um, but beyond EVs, um, as I said earlier, when it comes to stationary energy storage, vanadium batteries are quite a, um, uh, have, have some advantages for that stationary application. So kind of thinking of it in the future, if anyone wants any more information clearly about what's going on with the uh, indexes that Fast Market provides or the insight of where this is going, then get in touch with, with Peter here. Or you can also talk to FIS brokers, battery metal brokers, about actually trading the derivatives. My final guest this week is Matt Graves, Head of Editorial and Pricing for Forest Products at Fast Markets, uh, who talked to me about the pulp and paper markets, their importance on, to the environment and the trading opportunities people see in them. So Matt, the first question that comes to mind on this product is, what exactly is pulp and paper, physically speaking? What's the product? Yeah, okay. Well, pulp is the feedstock for paper making. So the short explanation is that you grind up uh, trees and you mix them with water and chemicals and create a sort of soup that we call pulp. And this soup can be poured into a paper machine that turns that pulp into paper, or it, the, the soup can also be dried and sold in bales in the open market. And we call this type of uh, pulp that's dried and sold, we call it market pulp. And it's a globally traded commodity worth about 60 billion annually. So that's uh, really pulp and paper. You know, pulp is the feedstock for paper. And I think most people know what paper is. Now you've blown everyone's mind about actually how paper is made, but uh, moving kind of more specifically on what our clients potentially be interested in, in the derivative contracts. So what, I don't know if you quickly outline what contracts are currently out there that you can trade. Yeah, so there are cash settled contracts for Europe and China available via Norexico, which is a Norwegian exchange that focuses on sustainable commodities. And there's also a physically settled contract available from the Shanghai Futures Exchange. So those are the two venues uh, where one can uh, do futures trading for pulp. And what about the kind of granularity in that? There's there's hardwood and softwood as well. I don't know if you want to kind of explain a little bit more for people when they, they go on Norexico's web, website and start looking at these things. What do those terms actually mean? What are they looking at for these specific contracts? Yeah, so really, uh, to, it, it's quite simple. There's two main categories of pulp. Of course, pulp can become very specialized and have different subsets and different types of pulp. But the two main categories are softwood pulp and hardwood pulp. And... It basically says what uh, the label says. It does what the label says. So the hardwood pulp is made from hardwood trees, which the majority of which are probably in Latin America, uh, with a big focus on Brazil. And the softwood pulp uh, are softwood trees, which uh, come mostly from uh, northern North America, as well as uh, Nordic Europe, and some in Chile as well. And those are the two main types of pulp that are traded. They're both of similar size in terms of their share of the market pulp market. And there's various quality attributes that make them better for different types of paper production. Uh, do you want to elaborate a bit more on, you know, which kind of main thing would you use for, for 
that kind of uh, harder wood and compared to the softer wood? Yeah, so if you're making uh, tissue or if you're making um, certain types of packaging, you would tend to, to, to use soft wood pulp, which is, has a longer, it's, they call it long fiber pulp, so it's a little stronger. Um, and then hardwood pulp can be used for pretty much everything. Uh, it's a little cheaper than softwood pulp and it's the fastest growing market. So hardwood has really exploded into the international scene with massive new projects in Brazil and uh, all, all throughout Latin America, but Brazil has been a big engine of the hardwood pulp business. Um, and so they're pretty interchangeable to be honest, but they're, they're and, and actually the spread between the softwood and the hardwood pulp is a very interesting thing to look at. And especially, uh, you know, from a trading perspective, that spread is something that's somewhat predictable uh, and that we see evolving over time. We have a lot of history about that spread uh, between hardwood and softwood pulp and how it behaves. Um, and Norexico, for example, has contracts on both hardwood pulp and softwood pulp. So uh, it's quite interesting to, to look and, and follow that spread uh, between the hardwood and the softwood. And then, of course, to follow the spread between China and the rest of the world. And you can do all of that via these, these contracts that Norexico has launched. So it's quite an interesting uh, opportunity, I believe, and, and something that not a lot of people know about. I do think it will uh, grow um, wildly. If we look at the Shanghai Futures Exchange, that contract for softwood pulp has been incredibly successful. Um, you have seen, you know, we're looking 20 times the, the size of the physical market in that contract alone in terms of trading. So um, we think that that contract is a, it's basically a sign that there is a there there when it comes to trading futures and pulp. Um, and we think Norexico is quite well positioned uh, to, to, to be there for both uh, financial players and for industrial players. Yeah, it is a somewhat niche market. I didn't think that I'd be here on a Wednesday morning talk about talking about the kind of fibrous qualities of the soup mixture of cut up trees. Um, <laughs> it is something to, to, to look forward to uh, on uh, as a future market. So that brings us nicely towards a kind of main focus of what this week has been. And that is, of course, uh, the environment. And I guess it seems somewhat um, the wrong way round in terms of thinking about paper and pulper as an environmental product that actually we're cutting down the trees. So maybe a little bit more of a, an explainer for people of, well, actually, how does this fit into? What is the kind of future prospect of this market, uh, environmentally speaking? Yeah, uh, well, first, first of all, it's important to remember that forests are the largest and best carbon capture technology in the world, you know, hands down. So unsurprisingly, forestry projects have become the largest category within the voluntary carbon markets. Um, so I think the credentials of, you know, trees uh, as a carbon capture mechanism, are, you know, are certainly not in question. And of course, uh, trees are the source of pulp. And uh, the, then the question becomes, well, are we reducing the amount of trees through pulp making? Or are we increasing the amount of trees? Well, we're actually increasing the amount of trees. So if you look at, you know, for example, in the Nordic countries of Europe, uh, their forest lands have been increasing every year. And this is primarily driven by the forest products industry uh, that is managing those forests. And of course, there's a big certification uh, 
tradition in 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 the in tree farming and so most all of the pulp that comes out of Europe or North America, for example, is certified um, by one of the main certification bodies. And that, that requires that those trees be managed sustainably uh, and harvested sustainably. So no longer looking at things that we saw in the past, like clear cutting, um, we're seeing a steady growth of the um, volume of forests uh, in the key producing regions. And so really these, the pulp industry, the wood products industry are driving increased sequestration of carbon uh, by increasing the amount of trees in the world. Um, now, specifically, if you drill into pulp, it's really interesting uh, to note that many pulp mills are partially or completely self-sufficient from an energy perspective. Um, so they've got these sustainable byproducts that can be used to generate power. Um, really, if you think about it, most pulp mills operate much like hybrid cars that are reusing much of the energy they create in their processes. Uh, and some mills are fully like fully electric cars, really, or even better, they're producing excess green energy. Um, I mean, it's really amazing. If you think about it, you have some of these gigantic industrial projects sitting in the, out in the middle of a forest that are 100% self-sustainable. They don't need a drop of fossil fuels to operate. Uh, and furthermore, many of them are selling green energy back into the grid. It's something most people sort of you know, superficially don't understand about the pulp industry is that it, it is you know, completely capable of being self-sufficient from an energy perspective. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of valuable byproducts that come from pulp mills. And you've got green chemicals, which are increasingly in demand. It can replace petrochemicals for many applications. Uh, biodiesel, of course, which is a relatively large market. You're using, you're seeing sustainable aviation fuels today made from, from, uh, from forest residues. So things that you would never expect, uh, like there's something that Stora Enso, which is a major uh, Nordic producer, has recently developed. Uh, they're calling it lignode. Uh, and it's actually uh, basically using lignin or a der derivation of lignin uh, to replace graphite in a lithium ion battery. Now, how big their future market is for that and what the details and the specs of that are, I, I have no idea, but you know, it's just an example of you know how far one can go with the byproducts of of pulp making. So you know, a you've got trees that are the basis that are sustainably managed that are grown. B you have pulp mills that are self sufficient, do not need any uh, hydrocarbons to 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 sustain their operations and that actually can sell energy, green energy back into the grid. And, and B, um, you've got a lot of interesting sort of byproducts coming out of these mills that are, you know, obviously have green credentials because they're made from sustainable source, which is the wood. Yeah, and that's ultimately the, the future of, physically speaking, how you replace our reliance on a lot of not environmentally friendly products uh, around the world uh, and also that sustainable management of, of forests to actually take in that carbon and 
another point which I remember from some other conversations that actually the end of life of trees can be something which then actually releases carbon back into the atmosphere. So actually using trees later in life and uh, promoting the, the planting of new ones is a very good way of continuing that process of carbon capture. Indeed, it has been proven that um, in terms of carbon capture, uh, uh, managed and harvested forest lands are are, are capturing more carbon than old growth forests. So it is really a great source of, of, of carbon capture. And, and, you know, speaking of end of life, that's something I forgot to mention earlier, is that anything made out of pulp is fully recyclable. Um, you know, whether it be paper or egg cartons or packaging, um, you know, recycling paper, for example, it's, it's not a PR exercise. It's really valuable stuff. There's a huge market for recycled paper in and of itself. Uh, and most new packaging capacity in Europe and Asia, for example, is 100% recycled based, meaning that their main feedstock is actually the recovered paper. Um, so you take that paper and you reconvert it into pulp and then that pulp is reconverted into paper. So it is certainly a closed loop when it comes to um, the end of life of the actual products that are that are reused. So having explored the physical side uh, a little bit and uh, convincing people of the environmental credentials of this product, why don't we kind of switch focus again and start talking a bit more specifically about derivatives and the, the trading of those. So why would a trader or company kind of want to get involved in this market, uh, especially if they don't have any physical exposure, which is a you know, obvious way of why they would be involved. Yeah, well, first of all, I think one thing just about the market in and of itself, you, you think pulp, you think about paper and you think, oh, you know, that might not be such a great market with the digitalization of the world. Uh, do we really need paper anymore, etc. Um, so in terms of the prospects for pulp in and of itself, pulp is actually in high demand. It's growing strongly. Uh, people sometimes forget that the paper industry also includes packaging and it also includes tissue. Uh, both of those markets are growing very, very well globally. Uh, in fact, the pandemic has driven you know, really strong packaging demand and tissue demand. Um, and then also it can be used to make textiles. Uh, that's something a lot of people don't know about as well, but uh, you can make, you know, it, pulp can replace cotton to a certain extent in, in, in textiles. So the, the future prospect, prospects for pulp are are really good in terms of a market in and of itself. If you were, you know, investing in a pulp mill, it would certainly be an interesting investment. Uh, but when it comes to, uh, yeah, how do people think about pulp financially? Well, obviously futures can be used to hedge exposure in the physical market. Um, and let me tell you, the producers and the buyers are heavily exposed in these markets. Uh, it's a massive part of their input costs, the biggest part of their input costs when you are making something and, and buying market pulp is that market pulp. So um, you, you certainly can, you know, physical players can use it to hedge their exposure. And in terms of financial uh, players, uh, there's obviously opportunities for cross-market hedging and arbitrage against the Shifi, for example, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and then these product spreads that I mentioned earlier as well between hardwood and softwood pulp. And one of the nice things uh, about the Norexico, what they're doing is they have a mirror of the Shifi contract available, and then they have uh, 
both European and Chinese hardwood and softwood contracts. So you got a lot to choose from, and uh, there's really a lot of opportunity there if you're a smart, if you're a savvy financial trader. Um, there certainly is a lot of opportunity there. And there's been a nice uh, level of volatility in markets we've had since uh, COVID, lockdowns, everyone ordering everything from Amazon, etc., uh, and watching Netflix while they uh, wait for it to arrive. Oh, absolutely. The volatility has been amazing. I mean, that's that's a global commodity story. Uh, but certainly, you know, pulp has been no exception to that. Uh, we saw massive increases, historic, uh, historic highs and historic increases in terms of volatility and decreases recently. Um, so it's moving. Uh, it's moving fast. Uh, the Shanghai Futures Exchange contract, which is highly liquid, is now uh, becoming a key determinant for not just prices in China, but prices globally, uh, because China is the largest consumer of market pulp, very much like the iron ore sort of picture. Uh, pulp is very similar. You have China buying huge quantities from places like Latin America and, and Canada. Um, and so I think, you know, there, there certainly is a proven case uh, that there could be a very low, well, there is a large financial market here already, but in terms of that, that's really a domestic Chinese market more. And so what, what Norexico is doing with these new contracts for that are cash settled for both hardwood and softwood in Europe and China is uh, really offering exposure to this market uh, to sort of non-Chinese players who are not able to, to for example, trade on the Shifi, on the Shefi, um, they can they can get into this market via these new cash settled contracts. So all in all, this is a product which is environmentally friendly. We've had a little discussion on that. And then in terms of the derivative contract, that gives something which has depth. It has that size of physical market and the volatility for, for other people who might not necessarily be physically involved, which, you know, if you're talking to them, they go, wonderful. You can get involved in the physical side, start replacing some of our non-environmentally friendly uh, physical stuff. Uh, and then there's a derivative contract to help me manage my price risk. But there's also that opportunity to to financials to get involved in a, in a new market which is environmentally friendly they won't have anyone gluing themselves to their office front doors because they're trading it uh, and it has that that volatility and that that depth especially with the as you were mentioning some of those spreads in that um, relationship with the chinese market which is already a, a significant trading compared to physical uh, size of a market this is a, a great opportunity here absolutely if, if if someone's looking to increase their exposure to green commodities i would say pulp is a fantastic bet um, and it's a relatively young nation market. So um, there is a huge amount of opportunity. And I think there will be a very bright, very bright future for uh, pulp futures. And um, yeah, just uh, looking forward to watching it all develop. So if anyone wants any more information who's listening, I'm sure that Matt will, of course, answer all your questions uh, on anything. And we have our own FIS brokers here as well. So do get in contact uh, with respect to the derivative contract and any trading you want to do. That's it for this week in the freight and commodity markets. If you want to stay up to date with everything going on, then do sign up to our app, FIS Live, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, join us again next week for more analysis and insight, and enjoy the rest of your week.